Hello, and welcome to the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. I'm your host, David Wu, and in today's episode, I interview Dr. Vivian Lee, MD, PhD, MBA, who is currently president of Health Platforms of Verily, an alphabet company. Dr. Vivian Lee is also the author of the latest book, The Long Fix, a book about solving America's healthcare crisis. It was a real honor to interview Dr. Lee today. She's accomplished so much in her very diverse career, and today we talk about not only her journey to Verily, but also her thoughts on how healthcare has been changed for the better by new technologies like digital health platforms, an example being OnDuo for blood glucose management and diabetics. We also talk about how medicine has changed from the day she started medical school to the future landscape that current medical students face today, one that is much more integrated with payers, tech, politics, and employers. I'm feeling very inspired after this interview to try and tackle all of healthcare's problems. And after listening, I hope you will too. Thank you and enjoy. Hello, everyone. I'm very excited about my guest today, uh, Dr. Vivian Lee, MD, PhD, MBA. And uh, I'll just kind of give a brief introduction. So, uh, among her many accolades, uh, Dr. Lee is magna cum laude graduate at Harvard Radcliffe. Uh, she received a doctorate in medical engineering from Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar, uh, MD from Harvard Medical School, valedictorian at NYU Stern School of Business, uh, MR radiologist who has developed novel methods for measuring kidney function and vascular disease with MRI. Uh, she's authored over 200 peer-reviewed research publications, authored a cardiovascular MRI textbook, senior lecturer at Harvard Medical School, elected into the National Academy of Medicine, former CEO of University of Utah Health and uh, Dean of their medical school, and now the president of Health Platforms in Verily, at Verily Life Sciences, an alphabet company. Uh, I'm going to catch my breath first because that's an you know, incredible list of accomplishments. And my first question is, uh, Dr. Lee, uh, are you a real person? You know, sometimes people ask me about all these degrees, and I say, um, you know, some people just need more education and more training. And I'm actually one of those people. I benefited from a little bit of extra education, a little extra nudging along. So, but thanks for that intro. That was really nice of you. So, you know, our podcast is the Medicine and Machine Learning Podcast. But, uh, you know, I'd say uh, to use, a, I guess, more colloquial speak, it, you seem like a machine, you know, you've done so much. Um, and I was wondering if you could just kind of walk us through your journey you know, just starting from medical school or undergrad and then all the way up until today. And just, if you could just tell us your story. Okay, I've been around for a while. This, this, this could take a while. It's okay, we got time, <laughs> we got time. Okay, so um, let's see. I started, uh, well, since this is for mostly medical students and, and medical folks, I'll say that um, I became interested in the idea of becoming a doctor. When I was in junior high school, I grew up in Norman, Oklahoma, went to a public high school, had a very resourceful teacher who decided to help us think about our future careers. And just randomly, I got assigned to a general internal medicine physician in my hometown in Norman. And his name is Dr. Belknap. He's passed away now, but he was really wonderful. And he would take me on rounds with him at our local hospital, Norman Hospital, Norman Regional Hospital. And we just sit down uh, on the, you know, on the edges of the beds of these patients and chat. And I didn't really understand much about the medical stuff, but I really thought, oh, this is a really, I could just feel like it was a really satisfying profession for him. And, um, and I thought, oh, yeah, maybe I could do this. 
but my inclinations were really much more in engineering. And so when I was in college, I majored in biochemistry, but only because it allowed me to fulfill both the pre-med requirements and take engineering courses as my electives. That's how I ended up in biochemistry, um, which meant that I did have to do a research project, which I was not very good at. I was not very good at pipetting in the labs, but luckily I didn't have to do that for too long. And so when I uh, was uh, a senior, I decided to, I was applying for medical school, but I had a very enthusiastic advisor who really encouraged me to apply for these different fellowship programs, the, the Rhodes Scholarship being one of them. And completely unexpectedly, I received that, I, I won the scholarship. And so that's what sent me off to Oxford to do, to sort of get out of my system, I guess, the engineering bug. So when I was in Oxford, I worked with a, a really fantastic um, professor of biomedical engineering, Brian Bellhouse, and worked on a medical engineering project for, for a PhD for DPhil. And um, then came back to medical school, thought I was going to be a surgeon. I always tell, when I tell medical students, you know, whenever I ask the first years, what do you want to be? And, you know, most of them sort of feel like, oh, they have some sense they want to do this. And then I always say, you know, just have an open mind about it because it, you, I've changed my mind and I know a lot of people have changed their minds as well. Uh, so when I was in medical school, the one thing that I knew I was not going to do was to become a surgeon. Okay. Like I, for whatever reason, I had that in my mind, like, okay, I'm not going to be a surgeon. So when it came time to choose where we wanted to do our surgical rotations, I chose the VA hospital because the VA had no attendings. So nobody serious about surgery would do it at the VA. So I thought, okay, I can have a pretty you know, easy time. And they had free parking. So those oh. are the two key factors. <laughs> and I ended up loving the month. So I know this is a little bit of a detour, but I'll, I won't spend too much time elaborating on this, but I actually okay. did match in general surgery. I oh, loved cool. surgery. I matched in general surgery at Duke with the then chair of surgery was a guy named David Saviston, who was legendary for being incredibly tough. It was called the decade with Dave. He, people used to sort of brag or there was a myth that it was like a hundred percent divorce rate. Oh my God. So, and it was back before there were duty hours requirements, limits, you know, on how many hours you could spend in the hospital. So in my internship year, I literally clocked a hundred hours a week in the oh hospital. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Oh my goodness. So you would go, literally you would go in and you'd be, um, you'd go in 6 a.m., work a 36 hour shift, oh my go home at 6 p.m. post rounds, and then wake up the next morning at 5.30 and get back in the hospital. You'd be 36 on, 12 off. Oh my and goodness. Yeah, yeah. And Christmas break was seven days straight in the hospital so that you could get seven days off. So wow. this is the old days I'm saying. Uh, it wow. was really amazing. So I loved surgery. It was definitely my personality. Uh, but about two thirds of the year, two thirds of the way through my internship year. Um, and I actually, believe it or not, in my internship year, I wrote two or three papers. You know, there's oh my God, because I was completely sleep deprived. Yeah, I was completely, they were just starting to do laparoscopic surgery at the time. Mm. It was just getting invented. And so I wrote, 
a couple of papers on lap coley i wrote a case study up on something else i don't even remember it because i was so sleep deprived but anyway but i woke up one day in the spring of my internship year and i looked at all my chief residents who were in their mid-30s because you know it was a decade with date right um and they looked so tired and i thought man i want to have a family i want to do research and practice i don't i just don't think i just don't think this is going to be the best way to do that you know Mm -hmm. So very, with a very heavy heart, I decided that I was not going to, I, I told my chairman, I told Dr. Sabison that I was not going to come back for my second year. And, and then I was, you know, didn't know what I was going to do. And the chair of radiology out of the blue reached out to me and said, Hey, I hear you don't, you don't know what you're doing. Do you want to come? I have a spot open and maybe you can come and be a radiologist. And I remember thinking at the time, that is the boringest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I didn't, you know, it was either that or worked in some surgery labs, you know, some of the surgeons offered me a lab year, but I didn't want to do that. So I said, okay, I'll try this radiology thing. And the good news is that my program director could see that, you know, there was something about my personality that wasn't really like a radiologist, but he put me in charge of teaching MRI physics to my fellow um, residents, you know, was something that we had to pass for boards, right? So everybody had to learn some basic MR physics. And I said, Dr. Bowie, I don't know any MR physics, you know, just because I have a PhD in engineering doesn't mean I know MR physics. <laughs> it doesn't matter, Vivian, you just need to stay one week ahead of them. That's all you have to do. So, so as a result of that, I became, I just was really fascinated with MRI. I loved it. It's so interesting how, how just a big magnet you know, no, no ionizing radiation, right? Nothing like CAT scans or actually a big magnet, you stick a person in and all of a sudden the protons in your body can make these incredible pictures. Mm. It's like magic, you know? So I was really, really interested in that. That saved my career. So, okay, I'm going to go a little faster now because I, I no, it's okay. spend the entire hour on this, but um, so I started in radiology and in my career, I was pulled into administration really um, unexpectedly. So I was kind of minding my own business as a junior faculty member at NYU, got my first NIH grants. We got a new chair who moved over from Penn. And because I had gotten a K award and then an R01 grant, he said, gosh, Vivian, you figured out how to get grants. Why don't you help everyone else in the department figure out how to get grants? Why don't you become my vice chair for research? Nice. <laughs> and I said, gee, Dr. Grossman, I'm like, you know, two years into my faculty position. Do you think maybe you could give me a little more time to, to learn? No, no. Okay. Wow. So next thing you know, I'm vice chair for research and I'm trying to figure out literally how to help other people get grants. You know, what I did a little analysis of the other top programs in the country. They all had either a major nuclear medicine program or a major MRI program. They had programs to support their faculty, to give them statisticians and research coordinators, you know, help them because they're doing clinical work and they need to do research. So it's not easy. And so anyway, we, we built a lot of that. It was really fun. Then he became the dean and the CEO. He got promoted. So that position became open. He applied. And as a result of him moving to the C-suite of the health system at NYU, he brought a few of us with him. So that's how I became the chief scientific officer at NYU or the vice dean for science. Uh, was just really on his coattails. And that was fascinating because then all of a sudden now I was responsible not just for the MRI and the nuclear medicine suite, but I was responsible for the mouse facility and we had a mosquito facility because wow. we had malaria researchers and the IRB, the tech transfer office, you know, that was worrying about patents and intellectual property. And 
Um, and then we had to decide, you know, are we going to create a neuroscience institute, an inflammation institute? How are we going to partner with pharma companies? It was so interesting. Mm. And it was at that point that I became very interested in this really simple question, which is why aren't academic medical systems at the forefront of healthcare reform? Because, you know, clearly we, we were hearing healthcare is broken, we need to fix healthcare. And yet the places we were talking about were the Kaisers and Geisinger, you know, all these sort of non-academic systems. And I said, well, academic systems have all these incredibly smart people. We have brilliant computer scientists who can do big data and data analytics. We have business people who can tell us how to run lean operations. We have um, all kinds of people who understand behavioral psychology and how do you change behavior of patients so that they stop eating you know, junk food on the sofa and so on. We have all this expertise. Why aren't we leveraging that? That was like this big question in my mind. And that's what drew me to this job in Utah. And that year that I was recruited to Utah to, to be the CEO and the Dean and the Senior Vice President was the year that Utah was ranked number one in quality of all university hospitals in the country. We're all ranked every wow. year. And NYU that year was number 10. And every time I saw the list, I'd see Utah at the top. And I was thinking, what, what are they doing in Utah? Mm -hmm. So the, when the headhunter called me and said, just come out and check it out. You know, you're curious about it. Why don't you um, pay a visit? And I just don't love the place. It, very resourceful, very innovative, very high quality. And so next thing you know, we're moving the family out to Salt Lake City. Wow. And I spent uh, six years there. And it was a fantastic experience. I'm happy to you know, elaborate on all the stories there, but we really took a system that had already been doing a good job on quality, as I mentioned, good, pretty good job on patient satisfaction. And where I really pushed was trying to lower the cost of care. That was mm -hmm. a big, big initiative for us, but also how to bring in all these other parts of the university to build an innovation center, to think about genomics and personalized medicine, to think about bioinformatics, um, you know, to kind of big science. So, um, and then, so I did that for six years, had a year sabbatical, wrote a book about healthcare reform. My book, oh, The Long Fix. The Long Fix, I got it right oh here. Oh my gosh. Yeah, of course. I feel like I need to take a picture here. Hold it, hold it up. I'm going to take a picture of you with that. Sure. Ta-da. You're going to be like in my ad or, okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Just, you just made my day. So it's all about fixing healthcare. I actually wrote it because I, uh, it was originally for the medical students. Mm. It's really all about when I was in Utah, I used to give these lectures, I was just telling you about this, to the first and second year medical students about how the healthcare system works, just trying to make it simple enough to understand, but not too simple. Um, and then what's needed to be done to fix it and what we were doing in Utah and other places around the country. And that core set of eight lectures was the, the core of this book. And then of course I elaborated and explained about how drug companies work and how drugs are priced and you know other that was things. a fascinating chapter yeah it took that, that was the yeah. hardest for me to do because very opaque very mm, opaque business mm. how do you how do you price drugs not not lots of secret things that are happening in there but anyway yeah i was trying to make that understandable so after that i thought i was going to go back and run another healthcare system i had a ceo offer in hand and was ready to go. And then these folks at Verily, which as you mentioned is a Google or Alphabet healthcare company, came back at me and said, hey, you really, you've written this book about how to fix healthcare. Just come and carry out the ideas in your book. Just come and do, it. do it here. 
So you can imagine that was irresistible. So I've been at Verily now for three years. I was the founding president of Verily Health Platforms and, um, and we've been growing and building products and it's, it's really been fantastic. That's a so perfect segue. Yeah, <laughs> that's a perfect segue to my first question. I was wondering, yeah, like in your words, uh, what does your job at Verily entail? So Verily is a really interesting company. It's really a health company, we're a healthcare and life sciences company that is, of course, has deep roots in technology because we are a Google Alphabet company. But primarily, first and foremost, we are healthcare and life sciences. And I say that because um, sometimes when you're a tech company, you're a, you're a, you know, you might tend to be a company with tools in search of a problem, but we're not that way. We really understand the challenges of clinical research and life sciences. And in my case with health platforms, you know, we really understand the problems of the healthcare delivery system. And so we've been, I, I just celebrated my third year anniversary. Congratulations. And yeah. So I was the, you know, I, I, we started this and in the beginning, it was just a bunch of slides on the vision and the strategy. And we are now a number of, we're kind of a whole family of businesses now. And what I do on a daily basis is um, really help to continue to support our existing businesses and then build new businesses and new products. So for example, you might ask, well, what kind of business are you in? Well, one example is a digital health platform called Onduo. So this is our oldest business. It, it actually started a couple of years before I joined. It was a separate entity. It was a joint venture. And then we brought it into the Verily Health Platforms family. So I've been responsible for it for about a year and a half. And it's basically the idea is you have a lot of people out there in the world who have various health conditions. And instead of expecting them to get all their care just when they come and see the doctor or the nurse practitioner, you know, in the clinic, how do you give them the tools so that they can take care of those conditions at home, in the office, you know, on all the 99.9% .9 of the time they're not in the hospital or the clinic. Mm -hmm. And so if you start with a condition like high blood pressure, very common, probably about half of all adult Americans have high blood pressure, type two diabetes, people have obesity and need to lose weight, you know, people have depression. If you take these different kinds of conditions, they really lend themselves well to digital solutions. I mean, we've really seen it with COVID, right? But even yeah. before COVID, even before COVID and after COVID, it's still true. You don't need a pandemic for this to be true. So, so if you think about type two diabetes, here's what this product looks like. You have first a new sensor, you have a new device. It's called a continuous glucose monitor. We happen to build mm -hmm. these at Verily. We actually, that's Whoa. our hardware part actually makes these for Dexcom, which wow. is super cool. Oh, so God. these are now these small little devices. You put them on your arm, you put them on your abdomen and they measure your blood sugar 24 seven for about two weeks at a time. Mm -hmm. And in our device, you know, we have this tiny little Bluetooth chip. So it sends the number over to your phone. So on your app, now you can start to see continuously your blood sugars. Oh my goodness. The day, right. That so no is, more of this wow. pricking your blood to get like one data point wow. and pricking yeah. your finger to get another data point. Now you're yeah. getting continuous, right? That's incredible. And, okay. So what are the most important things that affect your blood sugar, your diet, maybe your exercise, maybe mm -hmm. even your sleep. Mm -hmm. So with your diet, you can take pictures of your meals and snacks because it's your phone. So mm. when you take a picture of your, of your meals and snacks, now all of a sudden in the app, 
you see what you ate and you see exactly what it did to your blood sugar. So you make people, it's transformative experience for people because all yeah. of a sudden you have this visual association between what you ate and what it did your blood sugars. And sometimes it's obvious like, okay, that slice of, you know, double chocolate fudge cake, not such a good idea. Look at what it did your blood sugar. But sometimes it's actually more subtle than that. And so there's a fair amount of AI to mm. the audience. And to mm -hmm. the yeah. So you can imagine the AI, the AI might say, Hey, you know, we noticed that when you had, um, when you had a bowl of cereal and banana, uh, that actually wasn't as good as when you had eggs on toast. Okay, so here are some meals mm. in your diet that are better than others. Or I wow. noticed, hey, David, you, when you had your coffee with um, soy milk, it was better than when you had your coffee with skim milk. Wow. You know, it'll make these observations for you, right? Personalized to you. And one of the things that we see now with thousands and thousands of these people using this and seeing their blood sugars and their diets is that if you have a room of hundred people and they all eat the same food, blood sugar reaction, different, mm -hmm. you know, probably mm -hmm. microbiome related, you know, who knows what, you know, like yeah, it's different. Yeah. We kind of knew it before, but boy, when you see it, it's so striking. And mm -hmm. so being able to layer the AI to make a very personalized set of recommendations, that, that's what, that's what the tech is supposed to be doing. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then you add on that a little bit of uh, telehealth. You add on that a coach oh, wow, that you yeah. can text with, that yeah. you can video conference with to say, good job, David, good job, Vivian, you know, yeah. uh, or maybe, maybe a little nudge here, like, okay, that wasn't probably the best idea. Why don't we try this instead? Um, so we have that on top, which is also very, very powerful. So if you extend this idea to managing your blood pressure, to navigating, a, you know, through depression, or you can just see how powerful it is because it's with you, mm, you, you mm -hmm. and you use it when you want it. And it's a personalized experience. It's personalized. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That must be so much data that you guys are getting and such invaluable data, you know, not only well, for each person, but as a whole, right? Absolutely. And, and the thing that we though the way we think about that is that we really think about data as how do we organize that data into valuable information? Mm. So often people are really obsessed with the data and the data scares people, right? So yeah, when we so first much. started talking about this, the, the endocrinologists and the primary care docs rolled their eyes and said, oh my gosh, please don't tell me you're going to start feeding me 24 seven blood sugar tracings of every one of my patients. What am I going to do with all that anyway? You know, mm -hmm. so what we really want to do is to convert the data into information and to insights that are actually actionable. Mm -hmm. So we might report mm -hmm. back to the physician, um, you know, a summary set of key insights that they can then share or reinforce, for example, with their patients. We can, mm -hmm. for example, look at a medication change. Oh, you made a medication change with this patient. Here's what happened as a result. That's the kind of information the physician wants. They don't want the 24 seven real time yeah, tracing, yeah. right? So I think that's the, the data. It's about collecting some new sources of data, including like these sensor data. It's about really organizing it into actionable information and then presenting it back to the patients and to the clinicians in a way that really engages and activates them to do something differently. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think it's helpful to think about data, not just as data, but kind of in those more nuanced but also more um operational kind of ways mm. i'm curious uh, how large is the scale of this uh the on duo and you know this for example like the blood sugar monitoring like how large you know how many patients are currently using this kind of technology well we have uh 
we started probably a couple of years ago. So we have tens of thousands of people using it. Already? Wow. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's, well, you know, our businesses can grow very quickly. One of our newest businesses is the COVID business. So mm -hmm. when COVID rolled out, you know, everybody panicked and uh, we got involved. Alphabet got involved very early on. And we got into the business of helping people get access to COVID testing. Remember when nobody could get a test mm. um, early on and we were short on reagents, we were short on supplies, PPE, everything. It was such a, such a mess. And so we got involved early on in the COVID testing business. And that, that's a similar idea. How do you really get data, get the right data to the right people? In this case, employers trying to get people back to work universities we did a lot of universities trying to get students back to campus safely you mm. know and faculty as well and staff of course and i mean that overnight was like hundreds of thousands so the thing about digital technologies is that they are very scalable you know they're really scalable people just yeah. download an app and um, if you can create the experience that almost automatically makes it personalized you automatically have a personalized experience for hundreds of thousands of people. It's very powerful. Wow. wow. And I'm curious, um, do you guys partner with like a hospital organization or do you kind of provide it directly? Oh, we do all kinds of, uh, we have all kinds of relationships and partnerships. So yes, we work with clinics, we work with hospitals and health systems, we work with insurance companies, we work with government payers. With, with um, insurance companies too? Oh, sure, sure, absolutely. How, how so? So, for example, with um, Duo, we have uh, a number of contracts with major insurers who want to include Duo in their health plans. So if you want to have access to a diabetes management program and, you know, you work for, for some company that is using this insurance company to manage their health benefits, we need to work directly with the, the health insurance company to come up with the list of who's eligible, you know, who mm. has the diagnosis of high blood pressure or diabetes or, um, and to make sure that the, that we are paid. So we're actually paid in those cases, we're paid actually by the health plans. Um, in oh, other cases, cool. we work directly with the employers. So sometimes the employers themselves work with us because mm -hmm. they want to buy the service for all of their employees. It just varies depending on the business on the, the way in which it's set up for each of those. Wow. So I feel like it's a very, um, like it's custom, you know, like each, for each case, you guys have to custom, customize your fit to it, right? Well, so the business of healthcare is pretty complicated. You know, that's mm. one of the reasons why I think I was very fortunate to have the experiences that I've had, plus to write this book on healthcare so that I've actually, whatever I haven't done myself, I've actually been a student of. Um, and I've learned a lot about because working in the healthcare space is complicated. There isn't, in, in other industries, you have the consumer and then you have the supplier. Mm. And the consumer is also the payer, right? If you're going to go buy a pair of jeans, yeah. nobody else is insuring you against that and, and reimbursing the, you know, the gap or whatever. You're just directly paying them. And only in healthcare do we have these models where you have an insurer or you have a government payer. Um, that government payer could be a state level government payer or a federal level government payer, or, you know, it's just, it is pretty complicated. So um, it does make it a little bit harder to, to work in the business. Yeah, it seems like it has to be like bespoke, you know, for every like situation. 
A little bit, yeah. Part of the art of it is not to make it too bespoke. So that's, <laughs> that's part of the challenge, yeah. Mm. Sure. Wow. Um, and I'm so, you know, we, we briefly talked about it on Duo, and I feel like I should also talk a bit about your book, uh, The Long Fix. And uh, in your book, you talk a lot about, uh, you know, the co-production of health. And it seems like that on Duo example is a, is a good example of co-producing health. Would you say so? You know, you're kind of encouraging people to take photos of their food and monitor their diet. Um, would you agree or? Sure, sure. And, and I, I'm happy to explain a little bit to your listeners about this idea yeah. of co-production. Would you like me oh, to do that? That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's a very interesting story because this idea of co-production actually started outside of healthcare. There was a, uh, an economist named Victor Fuchs, who is actually right now at Stanford. He's, um, he's, he's a, a faculty member there. And he wrote a paper in the 1960s. Wow about the US economy, not just healthcare, but about the US economy um, writ large, and made the observation that the economy was shifting from a manufacturing-based economy to more of a service-based economy. So, you know, in the heyday post-war, we were manufacturing cars and electronics and kind of making a lot of stuff in factories. And mm -hmm. then he noticed that our economy was shifting more and more to a service economy, which it really has now, because we out, you know, most of the manufacturing is done overseas because of the cost of labor. So and what he noticed was, or what he observed was that when you move from a manufacturing economy to a service economy, the relationship between the providers of those goods and services and the customers changes. So in a manufacturing economy, like if you're buying a car or you're selling a car or a pair of jeans or whatever, there's really not much of a relationship. You just buy it and then you get that thing. Yeah. But when it comes to services, he observed that it's much more that we do it together. So, um, and that's kind of where you get to this idea of doing it together as a co-production of the service. So let's take banking. So in the old days, banking was, it, it really was something that was provided by the bank. In the old days, you have to go into the bank to deposit checks. You know, that's why there are pieces of paper you had to actually physically hand over the checks or even find out your, how much you had on, on balance. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, nowadays you do everything online, the co-production has even shifted to where I just basically mostly produce my own financial services, right? I do everything mm -hmm. online. And you can even now with FinTech, you can get a loan, right? You can get a loan mm. in about 10 minutes if you want to. It's kind of scary, but you can. Yeah. So the question is, how does healthcare evolve in that same way? How do we mm. think about individuals as instead of being consumers of health, prosumers of health, like really proactive in their healthcare, just like mm. we are prosumers of banking. And I think the digital health platforms for um, digital health platforms really represent a way of us leapfrogging into this more co-production, prosumer kind of notion of it and enabling people to kind of do it themselves. Now, as an extension, which I don't think I wrote about so much in the book, but I think as an extension, there's also the idea of how do we have uh, physicians and even employers or other people who are paying for healthcare help to co-produce that health too. And mm. how do we actually create systems where they're each involved? So when we talk about diabetes and you're out and about and you're not really in the hospital and clinics, yes, most of their responsibility would be on you to do that. But once you get into the hospital, you know, especially if you're in the ICU or in the operating room, the clinician is really helping to produce your health. So mm -hmm. what are the best tools for them to get the right insights, 
that same idea of how do they collect the right data and kind of organize it into useful information and actually activate and make the right decisions so that the hospital can be a safe place so that they can deliver high quality care. You know, mm -hmm. what kind of tools are necessary there? What kind of AI can be applied there? So that's kind of the next phase of the thinking is how do we apply those same ideas about co-producing health with people as patients, but now think about doctors and nurses and how do we give them the tools so that they can really help co-produce that health more effectively. Mm. It seems like in all of these cases, you know, whether it's the healthcare or the fintech, um, technology just seems to play a role. You know, like you said, the digital health platforms. Um, I was wondering, you know, if you could talk more about this role that technology is playing. Um, and, you know, for me, I, I think it seems like a very, like we're entering almost like a brave new world where I, I don't really know what to expect, you know, as like a future clinician, like how, how much technology will we be having in our day-to-day -day practice? And, uh, you know, what kind of role is, uh, you know, as you say, big data, like what kind of role is that going to play? Well, when I speak with medical students um, and I've, I've been doing a fair number of these talks uh, with different medical student groups, I always ask for a show of hands, how many of you have tried one of these digital health apps? And I put up a screen full of these whether they're mindfulness, whether they're helping you sleep, you know, not that I need to know your medical conditions, but I put up a few medical condition ones. Um, and I really encourage people to try them. I mean, I, I would ask you, have you tried one? Because you should try one or two. I've tried Headspace. That's, that's okay. That okay. Tried, yeah. yeah. So a lot of people have tried those um, and also meditation kind of ones. So you are definitely going to be prescribing these. Without a doubt, mm. these are going to be a part of your armamentarium where you're going to prescribe them. Insurance companies will pay for them. They already do now, like we just talked about. And um, you should really understand in the same way that you are sitting there memorizing all these drugs and all the adverse effects and the cross reactions and who knows what, mm. um, you're going to need to have that same level of understanding about these digital health products that you're prescribing, wow. uh -huh. right? Just think about it. Totally makes so, sense. So a little terrifying. <laughs> it's a little terrifying, but it's going to be so exciting. And what's mm. important, the reason why I encourage all students and residents, especially when I um, talk to residents as well, is two things. One, we're right now in, in the infancy, right? So the, the ways in which these tools are being deployed, the various ideas that the digital health sector is applying into this space to think about how do we engage people? How do we create the right kind of behavioral incentives for people to change their behavior, to reward them? How do we think about um, the way in which we, uh, we, we call it, well, how do we segment the population? How do we re recognize, for example, if you just want, if you want somebody to do something, like you want somebody to exercise more, let's say, there are some people we're just simply telling them, you ought to exercise more, they'll do it. Other people, you have to say, nine out of 10 of your friends are exercising more, and then mm -hmm. they'll do it. Other it's people, like you have to say, yeah, really, medicines <laughs> are like that. Other people, you say, like, this movie star is exercising more. Oh, okay, now I'm going to exercise. Your spouse is going to tell you to exercise more. Oh, they'll, they'll exercise. So, so there are very different levers um, for different people. You can't use one size fits all, right? Mm, yeah. And so how do we learn about that? That's one example of something that these digital health companies are just starting to figure out now. How do we kind of get people to change their behaviors and understand 
which levers work for which people. That's just one example of a lesson. Um, mm -hmm. Other people are figuring out how do we make this more fun for people, right? Gamification yeah. might be too strong of a word, but how do we make this more engaging? How do they, yeah. and people are coming up with different ideas about this. Um, other people are thinking about these sensors, right? What sensors can we use to give you feedback? There's a company that was started by a medical school classmate of mine who became a head and neck surgeon who really became determined to get people to stop smoking because, you know, so many head and neck cancers are just so awful and mostly mm. preventable, right? Mostly mm -hmm. tobacco related. So, and he started a company where instead of the continuous glucose monitor sensor, it's a carbon monoxide sensor. You blow into it. And of course, if you've been smoking a lot, you have high levels of carbon monoxide and that's really mm. bad. You get this big red signal, terrible, really bad. And so some people are developing sensors, right? To give you some mm. feedback and encourage you. So there's a lot going on in this space. So first reason for you to learn about it is just to understand and develop a more nuanced understanding of what product features you think work for your patients mm -hmm. and maybe what's gimmicky and doesn't work. And maybe mm. even some things are harmful. I don't even know, but hopefully not. Mm -hmm. And the other reason is because I think, uh, I really hope that uh, a lot of you will be involved in the development of these products. Mm -hmm. they, they're proliferating like wildfire now. I mean, anybody and their brother can start up a digital health company. And I think it's a really interesting space to be. Uh, yeah. We've got, you know, populations of tons and tons of conditions where people aren't taking their medications. They're not even diagnosed with the condition like high blood pressure leads to stroke and heart attacks and all these awful things that we could be preventing. So let's, Let's figure out how to make, let's figure out how to make the right thing, the easy thing to do for people, you know, mm. and digital health can do that. And if students can get involved, because you're the most digitally connected generation of anybody in healthcare, it's definitely not my generation, <laughs> then have at it, you know, be a part of, be a part of that revolution. When you were a med student, did you envision um, any of this, you know, that you, could you have expected any of this? No. Not at all, actually. I wasn't thinking about this at all when I was in medical school. But when I got to Utah, I did, that's when I sort of had this epiphany that um, I had to give a talk at the National Academy of Medicine on the future of academic medicine. Mm. So I thought, oh, future of academic medicine. And then I thought, oh, my medical students, they are the future. So I did a couple of town halls with first and second years and I realized at the time that these were all, all these students were born in the 1990s, which <laughs> may not, may, I know uh, to you, this will be, of course, to me, it was like, oh my gosh, you cannot be possible that you were born in the 1990s. Um, and we had this really great conversation about, you know, people's expectations coming into healthcare. Everybody, everybody thinks healthcare is going to be changing your generation, mm. right? Because you grew up hearing healthcare reform, health reform. I did not grow up hearing healthcare reform. Those What'd words were hearing? not- I grew up hearing healthcare being a doctor is a great profession. It's really uh, respected. It's really trusted. It's a good quality of life. It's a good living. It's really hard to get into medical school, but if you get in, you're really lucky and it's a privileged life and career. Was there we any never talk talked about, about digital health platforms? Nope. We no talk about electronic medical records. Oh my goodness. Uh, no talk about like challenges with the insurance companies and having fights over bills and claims and surprise billing and none oh of that. God. That that was not that we all came into healthcare. My generation came into healthcare thinking it was pretty stable. And yeah, maybe it was getting a little too expensive. So we might need to do something about it, but it wasn't 
you know, crisis. Mm -hmm. uh, so we didn't think it was going to change that radically. No, not at all. And so as a result of that town hall and just even our conversation, right, you can see that where I landed was in my in my talk to the National Academy was the new generation of people coming into healthcare get it the best. You understand we have to change and you understand where those tools are to really accelerate change. And they are in technology. They're in the mm -hmm, digital mm -hmm. space. The digital space all of a sudden can mean everyone can get access to healthcare. We have all these issues of access. We have all these issues of, you know, our physical facilities are only concentrated in urban areas. Or we are, all of a sudden we can use, or, or we are all designed around certain populations. It's not a personalized experience, right? It's, it's sort of, we have rising health inequities. Well, if, if we can overcome the inequity of people having access to technology, which I think we are very mm -hmm. soon, and the broadband also, we're working on that as a nation very quickly. This can be like the great democratizing, equalizing, if, if we build mm -hmm. it that way, if that's mm -hmm. our goal. And mm -hmm. your generation is the one that can really make that possible. Mm -hmm. And so when I was in Utah, we actually built all these, we had these really incredible programs. One of my favorite programs was one that students started called Bench to Bedside. A couple of students who had been engineering undergrads at the University of Utah then got into medical school at the U. And they decided to start a competition where they brought together the medical students, engineering students, and MBA students to start, create new innovations and potentially start new companies. Now it's pretty common, but remember this was started probably like 15 years ago. So it was one of the earliest wow. ones. Yeah. And I pull my, I put my full weight of support behind it. I said, absolutely. You guys, this back before the happen. iPhone and before the app store oh, was even out. Before the iPhone, it was, this yeah. was, yeah, we're talking like ancient dark history, uh, but it was incredible. <laughs> I mean, it was the ideas that people came up with. We had this whole separate arm that grew out of it, which was video games for health, mm. which was fantastic. And then we got a lot of uh, venture capital people to come and, you know, we kind of built it up a little bit so that we raised more money so that people could get some startup money. We made it so that, you know, in the past, everyone had to do a research project to graduate. And I modified that rule after they appealed and said, hey, if we do a startup, can that count as our scholarly project? I said, yes. I mean, you know, if you do something significant. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of opportunities for students of your era to do really creative things and to really transform healthcare. Um, I'm mm. counting on you guys to do it anyway. That's why I wrote this book. I wrote the book for you guys. This is like a handbook. Crash course, how does healthcare work? So you don't get blindsided because you don't understand anything because you haven't, nobody's ever taught it to you. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. Memorizing all the nerves and muscles of the body, you know? Yeah, so still we're barely being taught it. <laughs> well, so I know that. I know they should make this reading, it. you know, like mandatory reading. Oh, there you go. That's yeah. So I think it's really important because once you understand how it works, you guys have all the tools. And if you don't already have it, you can learn it much more quickly. Uh, and then we're going to count on you to fix healthcare for us. You know, I just had this thought and uh, I realize I just feel like you know, originally, a part, part of the reasons why I originally got interested in medicine is, you know, my father's actually an acupuncturist, and in acupuncture, Chinese medicine, like, it's a very clinical, it's very, you know, focused kind of on that physician-patient relationship, and I, and I really enjoyed that, and it really drew me into medicine, but I find that as I am traveling deeper down the path of medicine, med school, whatever, it's like, there's, there's so much more now, where, where it's like, you know, instead of, or in addition to becoming a clinician, you need to become a 
uh, a documenter, you know, you get to write down all everything for billing and then you have to, you know, you get involved in the research, you, you know, and then in politics, because now, you know, healthcare um, is, you know, it is a little political, you know, with like how we pay for it, how we pay for things. And it just seems like um, medicine has, I don't know, expanded or grown where it seems like, you know, gone are the days of like the guy, the, the doctor with the black bag and you kind of show house, house call. And now instead it's like, in addition to, you know, prescribing drugs or, you know, seeing patients, you also, oh, you know, I have this like digital health platforms that I'd like to recommend to you, or, you, you know, it, it almost is, I feel like the, the job is huge now. Would you, it what is. Do you think? And, and not only that, but the, you have to understand the business. You oh, have yeah, to understand yeah. the business of yeah. how it actually works. Um, mm -hmm. the, the days of the old private practice, hang up your shingle and, you know, just, just open up your clinic are over. It's Dang. almost impossible to, to survive in the world as a single solo practice private practitioner these days mm. because of the way the business model works. So I, I agree. It is really, really tough. Um, I think that we are, we, we need the technology not only to help our patients, but we need it to help us too. And mm. one of the sets, one of the businesses that we have um, at Verily is all about that. It's all about building the tools for the clinicians to help the clinicians be more successful in caring for patients, both in terms of improving health outcomes, um, as well as reducing the cost of care so that they could be more successful in these new business models where they're being, you know, they're really being forced to reduce costs. So mm -hmm. how, how, can, how can you do that on top of everything that you just talked about? So you need some tools. You know, you really need some tools and the data and the technology can be very, very powerful. Similarly, there are incredibly powerful tools um, for how you can actually practice better. So I'm a radiologist. The AI around detecting lung nodules, for example, in, on CAT scans is very sophisticated and it's only going to get better. Mm -hmm. um, the, we just were looking at some data today around the retinal images that ophthalmologists have to look at. Same kind of idea, right? It's like a where's Waldo, you're kind of every day scanning for these things. Well, computer AI um, algorithms are incredibly powerful for doing that. Or if you're worried about um, trying to keep track of all these patients in the hospital, there's some very sophisticated algorithms. You know, Google, our colleagues at Google have been working on a lot of these and others too, looking at pre predicting who's about to have a significant decline, right? Whether it's mm, renal failure, mm -hmm, sepsis, mm -hmm. whatever it is that's gonna, um, lead to, to patients having a poor outcome, the algorithms can pick it up 12, 24 hours, even more earlier than we can. So mm -hmm. how can we use those technologies to really help us practice better? Um, I think that's gonna be a huge opportunity. Mm. Uh, I, I do have a question that I, or more so it's a, a request for you to assuage my fears. Cause sometimes even though, you know, this is a medicine and machine learning podcast, I do consider myself a, a little bit of a Luddite sometimes because I worry that I, you know, with this technology, I feel like every generation, there's this new promise of technology, you know, this is going to, you know, with EHR, this is going to help with your documentation and help with your ordering, it's going to reduce medical error, it's going to make doctors more efficient. And then you look now, like a lot of doctors are like, oh, deal. it's caused, it's added so much work, I've become a documenter instead of a physician, I don't get to look at my patient, blah, blah, blah. like, I, I'm, I'm worried that, you know, with this technology, there's going to be a lot of unintended adverse or unexpected consequences. And I'm, I was wondering or hoping if you could, uh, you know, assuage my fears or, or at least, do you have any thoughts on that? Like any, un, do we, are there any unanticipated 
you know, things downstream that we might not be seeing. That could well, be- Well, I characterize your, your concerns as being very justified, but I don't think you're attributing the problem to the right cause. And mm-hmm. what I mean by that is that the burdens of the electronic health record on documentation what we call pajama time, physician pajama time, you know, at night you go home and then you're still digging through your EHR. Um, you're you're uh, trying to document everything. Most of those are really, I think, the result of our really faulty business model, our payment mm. model. And if we weren't in this, what I call the trillion dollar tug of war between health systems, doctors, and the insurance companies every year, mm. Who gets to keep the money? Is it going to come over to the hospitals and doctors or is it going to stay in the pockets of the insurance companies? Right? Every mm. year it's like this back and forth. If we didn't have this construct, then the electronic health record would live up to what it's really, what it was really expected to do. David Blumenthal was the national coordinator for health IT who helped to roll out the High Tech Act, who, who really um, his job was to implement electronic health records. And the vision was that it would enable all those good things that we talked about, detecting patients before they decline, improving safety, improving efficiency, all of the things. It got derailed because of the business model of healthcare and turned into giant billing and coding systems so that hospitals could try, you know, it was just like an even bigger um, whack-a-mole, uh, what do you call it, hammer um, mm. for the hospitals and clinics to fight against the insurance companies. And that's what's happened. It's not the technology. It's not an unintended consequence of the technology. It's a very much intended consequence because of the broken structure of our system. Uh, That's how I would describe it. And so the new, one of the silver linings of COVID is that um, I think there's a lot more willingness on the part of hospitals to rethink the payment models. So I'll leave mm. you with this kind of, maybe it's a vision that could become a reality in your career. It's probably not mm-hmm. going to be exactly a reality in my career, but in your career, I think it could be reality where imagine if the government or all these employers together would pay health systems, essentially a fixed amount of money every year to care for their populations. Uh-huh, okay? uh-huh. It's already kind of happening with Medicare on an ambulatory basis, but imagine it happened across the whole system that for hospital stays and for, patients who are under 65 and over 65, there was a a fixed amount of payment. And at the end of the day, if patients overall, because you had all this data about them, you could predict the likelihood of them getting well, should stay in the hospital for two days, et cetera. You could predict kind of what care ought to have been based on the, the data models that you had and knowing about the patients. And at the end of each year, you could true it up. You could say, well, hospital X, you on average did about 10% better than we expected. Hospital Y, you did 10% worse than that. Yeah. And that's the documentation that would be necessary, would be to say what happened to the patient? What, what were their symptoms when they came in? What happened to them? What was their outcome? Kind of the true medical record information that you would want. And all of that billing and coding and squabbling and upcoding and the literally uh, I think it's 8% of our healthcare dollar that goes just to these administrative squabbles could just yeah. disappear. Mm. That's what we should be doing. Mm. In my view, you guys can just make that happen, right? 
<laughs> yeah, I guess that, you know, leads me to one of our last question is, uh, you know, if you could give yourself uh, any advice in your 20s, uh, what, what, what would it be? Advice to myself in the 20s. Hmm. How about advice to people like you today? So, yeah, yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, yeah. that's even better, right? Um, I would say a few things. I'd say um, one is um, if you're in medical school, concentrate on your studies and learn the stuff, no matter what. Don't get too distracted by all these other things that I'm going to say, because you're uh -huh. at the core you have to be a good doctor and understand basic medicine. You mm -hmm. just have to do that, okay? That's one. And we're counting on you because we don't, we're not training enough physicians in this country. Mm -hmm. So I don't want too many of you to go out and become consultants or to move into technology and not practice medicine. I need you to look after me when I get older. <laughs> don't get distracted so, by shiny objects, right? <laughs> exactly. So just remember you practice medicine. There's nothing more wonderful and fulfilling than actually being a doctor. That said, I'd encourage you, if you have spare time, to, um, to broaden your experience. And it can be in any different direction, but there's so many different things that you could learn about today that give you additional tools to having greater impact as you get older and move through your career. So a lot of the people who I talk with are very interested in healthcare reform. They wanna help fix healthcare. You know, that's sort of the natural kind of people who are drawn to me into the, to the book, for example. And to them, I say, Great, then throw yourself in a project. You know, if you're mm. a medical student and you have some time, volunteer to do a quality improvement project in the hospital. Volunteer to do a community health project. Do a project with the homeless and try to understand just how hard it is to actually uh, get medications to people who are homeless. You know, do yeah. practical experience, li live, and live the real world of healthcare because it's not at all the way, it, it's not the, all the way it should be. And by actually living it, you will understand when you start to move up in the world and try to solve those problems, you'll understand uh, how hard it is, but you'll also understand where the opportunities are. Um, so that would be my second piece of advice, which is get out there and have some lived experiences. And then my third piece of advice is um, in the other spare time that you have, um, try to maybe broaden a little bit your knowledge about about the world. And mm. I'm right now, for example, I'm doing an edX course on data science. Oh, my spare time. Yeah. You have time? Python, <laughs> do a little Python. Why not? Oh my goodness. Know? Yeah. It's for fun. I don't think anybody's going to count wow. on me to do their data science for them, but edX is, it's so easy, you know, and mm -hmm. there's so much stuff that's online and free. So pick, pick the thing that you're interested in. It doesn't have yeah. to be data science and AI. I mean, if you're listening to this podcast, maybe it does have to be, but you might be interested in global health. You might be interested in community health. You might be interested in health disparities and women's health, men's health, anybody's health, you know, whatever, whatever it is, mm -hmm. but learn, learn, acquire a few extra skills. And in particular, I do encourage thinking about these areas that are new because my generation just doesn't have them like data science, big data, AI, all those tools are just foreign to us. They didn't exist when we were in medical school or a residency. So if you have those capabilities and I'm looking to hire, for example, that will make you even more attractive. If you're joining my group as a hospitalist or as a pediatrician, but you know a little bit about quality improvement or about community health, or you know a little bit about how to do data or statistics or 
anything like that, and you think, wow, that's very powerful because you understand the problems and you also have some additional tools to help solve them. Mm. Wow. Thank you so much, Dr. Lee. It's been my pleasure. I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for having me on your podcast. This was such a fun interview. Um, I'm going to say once again, the long fix uh, to our listeners, check out Dr. Lee's new book. Um, thank you so much for the interview. And My uh, pleasure. Oh, and by the way, I'll make a little plug. If you do happen to read the book, I'm looking for more uh, feedback on, on the online websites. Apparently that's important. So just... If you don't mind doing your favorite. The, the online websites? Uh, you know, so for example, like um, rating, like on Amazon or on those sites, you know, oh, yeah, definitely. are willing to put some oh, feedback. Of That's course. so uh, helpful. Yeah, yeah. I will definitely. And to our listeners, please do that too. <laughs> That's so nice. <laughs> and uh, th- thank you. 